This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Also, I want to give a shout out to Chris McNutt and his partners at the Human Restoration Project. Chris is a former guest on this show and is developing his second Conference to Restore Humanity coming up in July of 2023. This is a must-attend virtual event. Learn more at humanrestorationproject.org. Back on the show today is educator, social worker, speaker, big thinker strategist, community builder, mother, and two-time author, Stephanie Malia Krauss. Stephanie Malia lives just outside of St. Louis, is a New Jersey native, but has deep ancestral roots in Hawaii, notably on the islands of Maui and Molokai. Stephanie Malia's work focuses on what young people need to be ready and well now and in the future. She is the founder and principal of First Quarter Strategies, a staff consultant with the Youth Transition Funders Group, and a senior fellow with Education Northwest and the Community Engaged Research and Evaluation Sciences Institute for Children and Youth at Boston University. She is also a senior advisor for the Children's Funding Project. Stephanie Malia is the author of Making It, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World, and a regular contributor to Ed Surge and Scary Mommy. She started her career as a fifth grade teacher in Phoenix, Arizona. Her second book, Whole Child, Whole Life, 10 Ways to Help Kids Live, Learn, and Thrive, will be released in late May, 2023. It is this second book, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Chris Baum, author of Finding the Magic in Middle School and a former guest on this show, writes for this episode, and I quote, some people seem to know how to walk in the world with abundant wisdom and love. Stephanie Malia Krauss is one of these individuals. And even more of a blessing for the rest of us, she's a fine writer who has packaged this magic into book form. Her most recent book, Whole Child, Whole Life, coming out shortly, is packed with insights for parents, caregivers, teachers, and others who work with young people. It has the big picture, like how human development works during childhood and adolescent years. And it has dozens of practical, powerful ideas to help young people grow up whole and access more of their potential. Please buy the book, listen to what she says, and let it help us all make a world worthy of our kids." End quote. Cheryl Lehua Kauhani Lupinui, president and CEO of the Kohala Center, shared these words with me about Stephanie Malia for today's episode. 
Quote, I met Stephanie back in 2018 at an educational conference in Santa Fe. We connected over our relationship to and love of Hawaii and learning. What I remember then that carries forward to today is that Stephanie enters into rooms, conversations, and commitments fully present and invested. It is what made her a great teacher back then, I am sure, and a great author and friend today. Some people are a breath of fresh air, like Stephanie, and we are lucky to inhale such energy and light. As we've been on this journey together, I've seen Malia grow up more and more. In Whole Child, Whole Life, Stephanie Malia brings a fuller and deeper breath forward, one rooted in her own ancestral connections to Hawaii. This we call Ha in Hawaii, and now we are in a meaningful exchange of breath together. Hanu Aku, Hanu Mai, Whole Child, Whole Life, comes from this place of generous giving and generous receiving. I have much gratitude that Stephanie Malia has courageously written and is sharing the stories, thoughts, and experiences that help us and our kids live, learn, and thrive. Let us celebrate and read her book. To learn more about her work, email Stephanie Malia at info at stephaniemaliakraus.com. As always, you can contact me at josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. I welcome your questions and insights. And now, here is my conversation with Stephanie Malia Kraus. Stephanie Malia, welcome back to the What School Could Be podcast. Thanks, Josh. I am so excited to be with you today. So for the purposes of this episode, if it's okay with you, I'm going to simply call you Malia throughout. Is that okay? I love it. Okay. All right. So Malia, let's start this conversation by having you take our listeners who are mostly educators into your basement during all of the Sundays you spent writing your new book. Describe for us what this basement looks and sounds and feels like. What was the agreement you made with your family? And allow us a window into the process of you researching and zooming and writing and reflecting and revising at your keyboard. Paint us a picture. That is an easy thing to do because I am recording this podcast from my basement mm. and what you talked about. So this book was written whole child, whole life in eight months, which for me was a sprint because I work full time. And so the writing had to happen at the fringes of my schedule at night, early in the morning and on the weekends. My husband and two boys decided to support me on Sundays by renaming them Sun, S-O-N, days and planning <laughs> what they could do while I was in the basement. Mm. And some Sun days, my fourth grader, Koa, would make a little note reminding me, you know, that I needed to write, reminding everybody else to leave me alone. I have a picture from the writing process at one point when my 12-year-old Justice came down with a peanut butter, honey, and banana sandwich because when I get into the writing zone, I tend to forget everything else and really immerse myself. Mm. So the space, which I love, I'm so 
lucky that I got to move into this home knowing that I would be working from home. So I was a remote worker even prior to the pandemic. So it's full of my books and they are organized thematically, maybe in a prior life, I was a librarian. And so they go from future of work and learning to brain science, to social policy issues, and, you know, just all across these different topics. So my office space is just full of other writers and thinkers and images of past students and my own family. And then I'm looking across my basement to a room where you and I recorded our first podcast together. Mm-hmm. And right. it is bright orange and full of Lego. And my kids each have a desk there. And when COVID hit, which is when the genesis for Whole Child, Whole Life came about, I was doing this pandemic basement tour. And our house, like so many, had become a homeschool. And we converted part of our basement into the place where my kids learned for Mm -hmm. a year. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. You know, the pandemic chased me out of the studio when I initially started this podcast and sent me home. And so I actually built a little studio here in Honolulu, which is where I'm sitting right now looking out my window at all the plants in this complex that I live in. And so what, probably about 4,000 miles, 3,000 miles away from each other. Here we are, right? This is awesome. I love Correct. it. <laughs> it's almost 5,000 miles from each other. Mm, okay. It's a nice chunk of distance. So Malia, when folks get their copy of your new book and open it for the first time, they will encounter your preface to Whole Child, Whole Life which was written by your son, Justice Hilani Kraus, with contributions from his younger brother, Drew Koali'i Kraus. Justice is 11 and Drew is nine, if I've got that right. So how did it come to be that your sons would write the preface? What did Justice write? And maybe allow our listeners a window into the process as the three of you worked out the language of your preface. So books often start with four words or a preface written by someone who is notable and recognizable. I was really lucky in my first book, Making It, to have two mentors who were really distinguished. Maria Flynn, who runs Jobs for the Future, and Karen Pittman, who founded and ran the Forum for Youth Investment, open up that book with these two four words. And so I was really racking my brain with who I would ask to write the opening for Whole Child, Whole Life. And one day it struck me that if I was going to write a book about kids and what they're going through and what they need to be well, that it should really start with the voice of a young person. And Justice is an excellent writer, a great communicator, which generally I love, but when we're in arguments and he's especially tweeny, can be a little bit tricky. Mm. He's really living into his name, Justice. We think maybe (laughs) he's a future lawyer. (laughs) And his brother, Harrison, who we call Koa, also had really strong perspective on what it's like to be a kid right now. Mm. And the blended nature of it being at once scary and difficult and also 
worth protecting, Mm -hmm. that my boys kind of recognize this tension of wanting and needing adults to acknowledge just how hard things have been Mm -hmm. and also wanting and needing adults to acknowledge that they're just kids and they want to be kids. And so I knew that Justice would be able to write it. And I have to be honest with you, the first version broke my heart. It's not the version that's in the book. Mm. My, as you know, my godson about six months ago survived a a brutal school shooting, a mass school shooting in St. Louis. And the preface was written soon after that. Mm. And I kept that first version that Justice wrote because it was a passionate plea to grownups to stay alive Mm. and to keep kids alive and to protect kids and how scary it was. And we needed a little bit of distance from the shooting to get to the piece that listeners will be able to read in the book, which has more balance into some of the really wonderful parts of growing up now. Mm. But I think it's important for folks to know that there are so many moments in our kids' lives where things are scary and overwhelming and it's worth paying attention to. Mm, That's awesome. And so we'll flip to the end of the book now, your new book called Child, Whole Life. At the end of this new book, you write in the acknowledgments the following, and, and I quote, this is a book that came together through conversations with some of the best and brightest people I know. It was developed during walks with friends, brainstorming with field leaders on Zoom, and reading parts aloud to my family at night, end quote. So briefly, in what ways did your fellow human beings walk this journey with you? In, in other words, in what ways did they come together as a beloved community to offer what we in Hawaii call their mana'o, their wisdom, which you used to write this second book? So much mana'o and mo'olelo stories that... Um, come together here. I tried to blend story and strategy (laughs) across the whole book. Mm -hmm. I'm the luckiest. And I would include you in this group of people. I am surrounded by some of the smartest, most incredible, passionate change makers when it comes to kids and education and learning. And so To answer that question, I think we have to back up to that time when I was in the orange homeschool room in my basement recording the podcast with you for making it. Mm -hmm. During that time, we were at the height of the pandemic and I had written this book that was about what kids would need for tomorrow's world. And so I went around into this pandemic basement tour all through Zoom and almost every single time, Josh, Somebody in the audience would say, thank you so much. We need to know what kids need to be ready for the future. And also, I'm so afraid that they will burn out or give up before they get there. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the most resonant call to action for me that goes through the book. And so I knew that in order to live into what young people need for tomorrow's world, I needed to lean into what do they need for today's world so that they can be ready and well. Mm. And what I recognized when people were asking me that question was that I was actually situated in the social network of 
educators and social workers and counselors and scientists and developmentalists who could actually answer that question. Mm. And so this really, the most exciting thing, I I do not like the promotional quality of selling books, Mm -hmm. but I am so enthusiastic about anybody who cares for kids getting their hands on this book because it tells the stories and lifts up the research of that network of people, whether it was, there was one moment where more than 30 colleagues, my husband and I met in social work school. And so we have an abundance of mental Mm -hmm. health professionals in our life and more than 30 contributed to this list. It's a table in the book of mental health red flags to look for in young people when we should be on alert. I have one of my dearest girlfriends, Katie, is a grief counselor and she was a chaplain. And early in the writing process, we decided to convert the book covers these 10 whole life practices that promote thriving. And so we converted the practices into a Lenten practice. We made this Google Doc Mm -hmm. and put all 10 practices up and then decided we were going to practice them for ourselves and for our kids through Lent, although neither of us is Catholic. Mm -hmm. And we were really going to road test them and make sure that not only was the science right, but that it was actually going to resonate and work Mm -hmm. in the lives of people who are in the trenches because I'm still in the trenches raising these kids. So those are two examples of the kind Mm. of not only crowdsourcing nature of this, but Mm. also the really intimate experience of it. The last thing I'll just tell you is that people were believably generous. Some of the busiest field leaders, folks in the national U.S. education vanguard took half an hour, hour to sit on Zoom with me And I would pull up my screen with the table of contents and just say, Mm. did I get it right? Is Mm. it in the right order? Do we need to change the language? And so I I feel like what has emerged is really strong in the security of that collective wisdom. You know what I really love about this, Malia, is that we're like peas in a pod, in a sense. When I built this podcast three years ago, it was always my intention to actually develop it into a podcast family. In other words, there's like, what, there must be 800,000 podcasts out there. And I can imagine a lot of producers and hosts, you know, they produce the episode, they release it, and then it's over and they move on. For me, it's always been about staying connected to all of the guests, uh, 106 by the time we publish yours. And it's a really nice feeling, right? When you do that, when you do something as a kind of crowdsourced, beloved community process, I'm sure that it must have felt really 
awesome for you down in your basement on those Sundays and all of the days that you worked on on the book as we get ready to release it, as you get ready to release it, I feel like we. And so, right? Isn't that true? As a mom, I wrote the book I needed to read. And I had that level of seriousness in my mind all the time of these kids' lives are at stake. And we who care for them need the tools and the information. And what does it mean, my responsibility, my kuleana, that I actually know some of the people who can shine a light on that information and who can share those strategies. So yeah, I agree. It's powerful. Yeah, that's it. That it must be an awesome feeling for me. It is as well because I also know the people who can shine a light on what creative and imaginative and innovative teaching and learning looks like. And so we're kind of on that path together, which is awesome. And so, Malia, before we go to our first break, I want to talk about promises we make. So here in Hawaii, where I am based and produce this podcast, our public school system just before the first COVID lockdown was rolling out a strategic plan that was called the five promises. COVID more or less crushed all that good work and we lost our superintendent who was moving this forward just like most states did. But I continue to love the idea. In fact, your son Justice talks about this in his preface that we make promises to our kids. So we'll get into the specifics of your book after the break, but if you were a superintendent of a school system, broadly speaking, what promises would you want the entire system to make to every child, no matter the location of this system? I do honestly think it's the promise that permeates this book, which is I'm committed to the wholeness and fullness of who your child is, both now and who they will become in the future. I'm committed to their well-being and their well-becoming. And I know that living with joy and purpose and being able to grow and learn is central to that. That beyond being ready for college and careers, that we are striving to give your children everything that they need to have long and livable lives and lives that they love. And so as you began to develop the 10 ways to help kids live and learn and thrive, and as you were working with your community, you know, to kind of crowdsource it or to road test it, in what ways did these notions of the promises that we make to kids kind of evolve and change? Or were they sort of fixed at the beginning as a writer? Were you pretty sure going in about what you were going to present or did it evolve over time down in your basement as you were working your way through the many months that you were writing the book? This is an instance where I had the framework set before I began writing. And that framework was tested with that group of scholars and smart people who I Mm. consult about these types of things. And then it was really sort of both derived from the research and then checked against the research. So I would say that it was a real process of getting to know intimately each part of who a child is. So the first part of the book dealing with how do we move outside of seeing a kid in 
the context of the single setting or system where we spend time with them at home, at school, in community, but realize like they're the same kid mm-hmm. and they're going through all these places. So in that part, as you know, we explore everything from that kind of crude profile of who young people are to where they are developmentally and health-wise and what brings them into high definition and who their people and and places are. And I'm sure we'll dig into that. Mm -hmm. With the practices, what was really illuminating was going after knowing what the practice was. And I'll tell you one part of the promise that was so important to me, but then digging in. So my process was I would I knew what the whole child practice was. For example, meeting basic needs is one. Nurturing healthy relationships is another. And I would, and you can actually see this on my social media, I would go through and I would get a whole stack of hardcover books that dealt with it. And I would fill up my computer with all of the articles, both empirical articles and news articles to really contextualize to current events. Mm. And I would spend more than a week just immersing myself in all of that literature and really thinking about it, going for walks, processing it, living into it, talking to my own kids about it, and then would start the process of writing only after sort of swimming in the information for Mm. a little bit of time. And what was then really powerful is I would do these interviews. So more than 50 scholars and field leaders were interviewed as a part of the book. And that's including and beyond the group that we've been talking about. Mm. And I would ask them, okay, so what are things that people can put into practice right now today? And so those pieces were really fun too, because I actually practiced, like the Lenten practice, I Mm -hmm. started to practice those myself. So I've lit, I didn't only write the book, I, I lived the book as I was writing it. Mm, that's awesome. And I, I love in this first section, Malia, that we've given our listeners the chance to really understand what you've gone through over these past months to produce the book. And I, I, I just feel really strongly that everybody who's listening to this podcast really should consider getting this book. When I finished it, I was like, wow, this is something <laughs> that everybody needs to read. But I had the same reaction about making it, as you recall from our first podcast. So that's great. Thank you. Thank you for the window on the process. Hey, everyone, we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Stephanie Malia Kraus. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, Experience Matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
friends, this is Toy Hirschman from Entre Ed. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the Entre Ed Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Stephanie Malia Kraus, now a two-time author who is relentlessly focused on what kids need to thrive in changing and challenging times. So Malia, just for funsies, but with your serious intent in mind, let's talk about quirks for a minute. I'm pretty sure that I, Josh Rapoon, am a basket of quirks. So just ask my wife, like the house has to be completely tidy before I can sit down to work on education stuff. When I talk, I tend to look at the ceiling as if my ideas are coming from above and so on and so forth. So what are your quirks and why do quirks end up holding significant space in this new book, Whole Child, Whole Life? <laughs> you have me laughing because I'm thinking about poor Cheryl and your cleaning and how I was <laughs> compulsively cleaning this past weekend. And I, I wasn't sure if I was procrastinating doing book launch activities or if my house really needed to be cleaned. <laughs> right, that, right. Gosh, that was what I was doing. So this was one of the funnest pieces to write in the book. And I love that we have zoned in or <laughs> zoomed in on this piece. Mm. I, so there's a chapter in the books for folks who are listening called Strengths and Struggles. And it's the very last chapter of this idea of a whole child portrait. And I talk about how strengths and struggles are what bring kids into high definition it's a deeply personal chapter because as you read, Josh, it opens up by saying, like anybody who knows my kids knows that Justice loved baseball and Harrison Koa loves Lego and because of what they wear and what they talk about. And I kind of go through the depth of knowing a child end by saying the people who really know my kids know the moment they walk into a room if they're okay or not okay and know their history and the things that they have struggled with and the things that they're really talented in their their gifts mm. so i walk into this idea of quirks being kind of our superpowers mm. and so you asked me what my quirks were and I, I don't know, I really have to think about this. I think I get really loud and excited and talk super fast when I get it into ideas that bring me a lot of life. Certainly the cleaning probably is a little bit quirky. I'll have to think about my quirks, my specific ones and get back to you. But I want to tell you this story about this teacher. So I, I talk about my brother, Nick, who's particularly quirky in it. And basically, it's this incredible turnaround strategy that very often, particularly in elementary and middle school, although arguably in high school too, quirks are the things that can get young people to feel socially isolated, have them feel insecure, have them kind of hide or suppress. They don't want people to know these things about them. Sometimes in the worst case scenarios, 
this is spaces where kids might get bullied. Mm. And there was this teacher who decided with elementary school students to have them turn their quirks into superpowers and create these stories about their superpowers, you know, based on these things that make them uniquely who they are. Mm. And so I talk about quirks in the context of being the special signature, Mm. kind of the, the fingerprint, the signature style of who a kid is and that they need to be handled with care and appreciated because that's what makes each child, if we think about it in the context of these portraits, these works of art, mm. it's what makes each kid unique and different. Absolutely. It are the the things that, and I even think about this as a mom, I've got these two boys and I can look all the way back to their youngest years and see how they were always themselves and mm. so radically different from each other, even though they were born in the same family. And a part of that, are their quirks, their personal characteristics that just make them who they are. Mm -hmm. That's awesome, Malia. And, you know, I'm already anticipating that I now have my argument all lined up when Cheryl is rolling her eyes and I'm getting the house tidy before I do my work. <laughs> I'm going to say, Cheryl, this is my superpower and you you need to understand me for this, right? But your point is, your point is well taken. And I love the way that you spun it into something kind of funsy in that way, that, mm -hmm. that quirks are like super interesting. And I think it's such an open door for any educators who are listening to this episode. It's an open door to figuring out who your kids are. And as you explain very carefully in the book, not profiling them, but developing a profile of who they are. And that's awesome. So, okay. So switch in direction here and, and bear with me. This is going to take a couple of seconds to get this out on the table. But Malia, while reading your book, there were times that I, I just wanted to scream to the heavens in frustration. So for example, you write, and I quote, collectively, we are in the middle of a historic shift in understanding young people. Before the 20th century, adolescence, meaning the tween and teen years, wasn't a universally recognized stage of development, end quote. Yet here we are, more than 140 years into the factory model of education, mostly approaching teaching and learning and young people in the same way we have for decades. So why, 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 Malia? If we are in the middle of a historic shift, why are our systems not changing? If, if no two kids are the same, why do we march them in lockstep through grades K through 12, learning chemistry, biology, and history in siloed classrooms? And like, are we insane? And, and by the way, how we educate kids, the grades, the GPAs, the tests, the college or bus mentality is all, to me, just kind of toxic stress, which you talk about at length in chapter three. Okay, so I'm done with my rant now. It's your turn to kind of look down on this whole thing and, and provide your thoughts on it. I don't know that I have an answer. I know that the lift is hard. Mm. and that the amount of mindset and cultural shift that it takes to shift from a factory model, which is running and operating as it was designed, as you and I both know, it was designed to take farm kids and turn them into factory workers. And it was based in industry. And we have so much more insight into the science of learning and development 
which is often a mismatch for how our schools are designed, how classrooms are designed. We know that young people learn through experience, through immersion, through interests, by getting up and moving, that learning is inherently social and emotional. Mm. And yet, young people are coming out of not only a model that has not changed a lot, that is still reflective of a factory model, a model that consistently produces outcomes that are inequitable and unequal. Mm. But they're also coming out of a time in the pandemic where a lot of those things were exacerbated. So while when schools went remote, there was so much conversation on reimagining education, Mm -hmm. when kids came back in masks, their desks were back in rows and separated and they weren't able to be in groups or to engage in activities that were really experiential outside of incredible educators who were kind of moving the barriers in a really heroic way. And so I think I approach the book in a different way by writing it to anyone who cares for kids, Mm. understanding that learning happens whenever it happens and wherever it happens. And same with development. Learning and life are going to happen whether a kid is in school or out of school. Social issues, emotional issues, cognitive connections. And I think, Josh, that Mm. it's just going to take all of us. It's going to take a broader view on young people engaging in a learning ecosystem Mm. that includes their classrooms and their community and their homes and the other spaces and places where they spend time. And then it's a question of how do we better connect the adults who are in those spaces and places and how do we recognize that we really all need each other, that Mm. there's so much to learn from summer programs and after school programs and youth development activities and that the work of changing our education systems will have to continue. Mm. So much of it is structural and there's so much that has to happen at the level of the direct relationship and interaction with kids, Mm. which can move faster and be more malleable than the systems change can be. Yeah, I love that. I love that, Malia. And I really, listeners, I, I if there's one thing that you take away from this episode today, I just feel so strongly that whole child, whole life is a is an open door. It's an open invitation to move away from any sort of lockstep in, in the way that we treat kids. It is an open invitation to looking at them as a million points of light, each one different from the other. And that the wholeness of a child comes as a result of the fact that we do look at every single kid differently. And I think that's maybe the pathway forward. So perfect. That's a a perfect segue to kind of coming back to something that you talked about a little bit earlier. During the COVID lockdown, and you, you referenced this in an earlier response, you were doing virtual book tours for your first book, Making It, and you kept hearing versions of the same question, which was, now that we know what kids need to be ready, can you tell us what they need 
to be well. And you said you felt this question in your bones, Malia. So tell us more, and sorry for the multi-part question, talk about how you decided to avoid deeper subject treatments where jargon and acronyms might have resulted in confusion and worse divisions. Like, in other words, how did you work to meet your readers where they're at? It's 2021, we're in the height of the pandemic. My kids are home with me. We actually had to pull them out of school. Well, we chose to pull them out of school. My mom's an educator, we had moved her in. Of course, I have an education background. So we had this shift schedule going in our house. Mm. And I talk about this in the book. My son has given me permission to share his story in the middle of all of this, including in the middle of this virtual pandemic book tour, he wakes up with life-stopping OCD symptoms. Mm. And my husband and I didn't really understand what was going on right away, which for listeners, you need to know, my husband and I, I think I meant, oh, I mentioned it earlier, we met in social work school. Mm -hmm. And so if he and I did not pick up on it right away, I can only imagine what it would have been if we were, I don't know, engineers or Mm -hmm. (laughs) worked in marketing, right? Right. Didn't have the background. At first, I just thought it was because it was a pandemic. I didn't realize there was something bigger going on. So here I was struggling in real time with What ended up being, and you'll have to, listeners, you'll have to read the whole story in the book, but what ended up being a really complex combination of mental health and physical health issues with my 12-year-old that he was going to end up having to deal with for the rest of his life. So I'm facing that while I'm talking to people about what kids need in the future. And so this pull of worry and wonder about what will it take to get them there. And also consideration of if my child is going to struggle in this world with external things like a pandemic and economic crises and a changing world and a changing climate and all of these pieces, and also with some long-lasting chronic health and mental health pieces what then is most important? Mm. And what do I need to equip him with here in childhood that will last him a lifetime? And so I think that this book is this really interesting combination reflecting the urgency that so many of us who work with kids and are raising kids feel on a daily basis, which is the lived experience of our young people has Mm. changed how they are wired and how they experience the world. And one unfortunate reality of that is so many struggle with mental health Mm. and so many struggle with physical health and just issues to their health and well-being. And so it was the recognition that 
students are children in our care, athletes are children in our care, clients, participants are children in our care, and that we all need to recognize that we're called to live into the science and art of caring for children, and that if we don't care for them well and teach them how to take care of themselves, then Mm. they won't have what they need to live their life in the future Mm. and to be well in the future. And that's where that piece that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode came up, where I recognize that to make it in the world, you have to be ready. And I still very much believe in everything that I wrote about and talked about in making it. The world is unfair and unjust, and we need a roadmap for what it really requires to be ready and make it. But to live a life, to build a future and a life that you love, you have to be well. And only if you're ready and well can you thrive. And what I wanted to figure out, the hope of this book and and my work since has been, number one, what does it take to thrive now and in the future? What can we learn from the science? What can we learn from history? And number two, is it even possible to thrive when times are really tough? Mm. And what does that take? Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect segue to this next question. You know, you wrote, and I quote, imagine if we could work with kids to chart their development over time, generating a dynamic and comprehensive picture of their unique development, end quote. So for our mostly educator audience, what does this charting look and sound and feel like? Like, help us imagine how it feels to a young person to be assessed according to a growth chart. What were the experts telling you during your research about a growth chart and the way that this process unfolds? I'm really fortunate. I worked with a brilliant illustrator on this book, Manuel Mm. Herrera, and he was a special educator and a school administrator, is also a parent, has a middle schooler and elementary school student. And he and I worked together to actually draw one of these developmental growth charts. So it's in the book. Mm -hmm. But I was really imagining it's a really powerful thing for those of us who parent, whether you are there, your biological children, but if you are raising kids, when we take our kids to the pediatrician's office and we can see how they're growing over time. And for me, the power of the growth charts where we see height and weight together is in how they are charting according to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. So in the book, I tell the story of how my older son, Justice, was born in the 99th percentile and he's stayed there. And last year, he really started to get worried about whether he was too big for his age. Mm -hmm. And we were able to sit down with the pediatrician and she was able to show him based on how he has charted over time and who he is, what she expected, Mm -hmm. which was that he was perfectly normal for who he is and how his body is built. And she showed him what would be worrisome. And so I started thinking, how amazing would it be if we knew, and we do know, 
the social and emotional and cognitive milestones developmentally that young people need to hit. Mm. And we know that based on experience and biology and just where a kid is circumstantially, that they'll go faster or slower depending on who they are and what they're going through and what makes them who they are and how unbelievably powerful would it be to sit down at a parent-teacher conference or to sit down as a group of teachers and be able to see how a student, how a young person is charting socially, emotionally, and academically or cognitively, Mm. and then ask the question of what is normal for them and what is not. You and I have both been in the personalized learning, competency-based education, student-centered world for a long time. Right. And this is a missing part of it. This is saying that like, we talk about social emotional learning, but very often it's a set aside class or it's just done at a particular time of day or by a particular teacher. But this is recognizing that learning and development, learning and life, those things are completely interconnected and that in order for us to support the learning and growth and development of kids, we need to be charting and considering Mm. where they are socially and emotionally and cognitively. So that developmental picture and also sometimes physically, and then considering that in the context of how old they are, what stage or grade they're in, mm-hmm. and other factors. Mm, that's perfect. And so, again, perfect segue to this last question before we go to our second break. And, you know, again, I apologize. It's going to take a second to unfold. So, Malia, let's say that my daughter, Emma, has just started the fifth grade, and I have just read your book, Whole Child, Whole Life. It's out. It's awesome. And let's say that I am moved by your work and I'm working to understand the world that Emma lives in today in 2023 and the systems that she interacts with, her strengths and her struggles, the works. And so let's say I'm all in on being a cartographer of Emma's life and times without being a helicopter parent, of course. So to paraphrase you in chapter five, as her father, I want Emma surrounded by adults who deeply know her who take time to learn her interests and idiosyncrasies, strengths and struggles, who meet her where she's at and see her in high definition and who want to see her vibrantly living and learning. But Emma's fifth grade teacher is having none of this stuff and is fully intent on preparing her for middle school, high school, college, and a career. So now what? What are my choices here? What are the conversations I will need to anticipate And how might a reading of Whole Child, Whole Life help me navigate this particular moment and moments in the future? And and I know that's a a hard one because it's a hypothetical, but yeah. No, that's okay. I think it's a really important question. And it also gets to complexity of many of us will read Whole Child, Whole Life. We are working with and raising kids in a multiple... In multiple ways. So this, somebody listening to this podcast might be a parent themselves, be a teacher, and they're also a volunteer soccer coach, for example. And all of these kids are in our care whenever they're spending time with us. So I think if we think about this from the perspective of a parent or caretaker for a moment, the first part is recognizing, actually, this comes out of the chapter on nurturing healthy relationships, that Mm -hmm. there are ways to 
look at Emma's social network and ask yourself, how is this a support network? Mm. How can this social network be mobilized and converted in a way that gives Emma the support that she needs? And what can this teacher provide? And what can't this teacher provide? And where else can Emma get that in her life? Mm. So I would look at really painting this goes back to this idea of portraits. Where are all the spaces and places where Emma spends time? Who are all of the important people in her life? And against the 10 whole life practices, where are the spaces where she sort of lights up in particular places? So when I'm with Mr. Rapoon, I really feel like I belong. And mm. that class really feels like community for me. Mm. Or mm. when I go hiking or canoeing or swimming, I really get to experience awe and wonder. Mm. Now, of course, kids will lack that language, fifth graders, but this is a part of our job. And so we kind of look at the whole child practices as this wheel that needs to be colored in across the whole of their lives, Mm. all of the spaces all of the settings, all of the relationships. That said, I do think that I actually wrote a really, really controversial article for Scary Mommy about when can and should parents speak Mm. up and say something Mm. if their teacher isn't meeting basic needs. And that some of those basic needs for young people include things like play and rest, mm-hmm. being able to use the bathroom, being able to get up. And very often in classrooms that are kind of most compliance oriented or more authoritative, those things might not be present. And so I would say that if you're a parent, of Emma and you've read this book and you're thinking about your own kids, it should lift up the common concerns and conversation for Emma should have Mm. that anyone caring for Emma should be willing to talk about and that doing a really honest appraisal of what various adults, the gymnastics coach, the fifth grade teacher, the principal, the faith leader, you and your partner grandparents, what each of you kind of provide in Emma's life would be an important practice. Mm, That's awesome. Well said. And, you know, I referenced one of your social media posts just recently where I think it was a parent who said that her reading of the book actually literally gave her a moment where she could navigate something that was complex and she didn't have that roadmap before. She read Whole Child, Whole Life, and now she does, right? And that's how I feel. And listening to your response, I feel a weight off my shoulders because now I see Emma in totality with all the people who represent relationships in her life. And it's not just this one person that you get hung up on. And I feel a little bit more courage in terms of stepping to the plate and having this conversation with a teacher. So that's great. Awesome. Can I jump in just really quickly, Josh, and say for folks who are still kind of trying to, if you're listening and you're trying to grasp like whole child, whole life, (laughs) it's just so expansive, boiling the sea. Yeah. I think it's that 
yeah, taking care of kids is a really big job. And we often lack all of the information and training and tools that we need to do it, regardless of our role, whether it's as a caregiver, it's coach, counselor, teacher. And so I wanted to create this guidebook that hit each of the aspects of taking care of kids. Um, But then as you said, also gives very practical, grounded and concrete strategies. So if you're reading the book, you'll get the big of it all. And you'll also get the, okay, what do I do right now? Practical pieces too. Yeah, that's awesome. And then we go back to what you said at the very beginning, which is that you road tested this. You didn't just write the words, you lived it, um, which is awesome. I love that idea. So hey everyone, we have been talking to Stephanie Malia Krauss. Stay with us. We will be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Stephanie Malia Krauss, who works at the intersection of education, youth development, workforce development, and human services. Her work and writing are focused on what young people need to build lives and futures they love. So Malia, in the latter third of your book, you wrote something that caused me to say, geez Louise, thank the gods someone is going public with this thought. So you wrote, and I quote, let's not pressure kids when they're young to choose a single career path or passion to pursue. Instead, let them discover the causes, questions, and careers they want to explore, end quote. So I am concerned, Malia, that the Reimagine Education movement, which I'm very much a part of, is causing kids even more stress by pressuring them to find a passion as early as possible. And I am also concerned that we are forgetting the awe and wonder of aspiration in our haste to prepare and equip kids for the so-called future. So I wonder if you could take us deeper into all of these issues and be our collective thought leader on this particular point. Oh, well, you are going to ignite my belly fire (laughs) with this question. So 
as you know, I have this background where I left education and youth development. So working with kids. And then I spent time on the flip side in higher education and workforce development. And I saw very often that there was a mismatch between what schools considered college and career readiness and what was actually happening in the job market and in the economy. And in recent years, that distance has exploded for a number of schools. At the same time, there have been a subset of schools that have developed some really incredible work-based learning, experiential learning models. My favorite historically and always has been big picture learning, Mm. which has blended preparation with finding purpose. Yes. So one of the pieces in this book there's a chapter on investing in personal interests where I explore this difference between purpose and passion. But I want to first situate this in the context of preparing today's kids for their working lives. So now we're going to blend together the research on what young people need to be ready and what they need to be well. Mm. Because very often when we talk about passion, And when we talk about you can be whatever you want or go pursue your dreams, it's also not anchored in the reality Mm -hmm. that a lot of young people are facing and the true pressures that they're experiencing. At the same time, when young people are experiencing economic pressures and social pressures and family obligations, and they're only presented a narrow view of who they can be and what they can do, that also does not help them. And so it is that combination of how do we support young people in finding that they are prepared for their working life Mm. and that they have some through line sense of purpose that will help to guide and motivate them. Mm. So let me illuminate this a little bit more. The science now suggests that when kids have the right resources and opportunities that as an expectation outside of crazy natural disaster, that they will likely live to be a hundred or older. In fact, there was a BBC article a few weeks ago that suggested that maybe we could live to be older than 140, which is wild. Yes. So on the same day that Whole Child, Whole Life comes out, another book is coming out where I have a chapter called The 60-Year Career. Hmm. And in that chapter, I talk about the fact that if young people are living longer, that they're also working longer, and that we have to prepare them for this possibility of a 60 or even 70-year working life, which is basically their grandmother or their great-grandmother's lifetime. And so... They're preparing for a lifetime of work, which will include a changing marketplace, a changing workplace, events that are volatile and concerning like pandemics and other things that we see, extreme weather, violence, etc. And so it's important that they're anchored with a sense of what they're good at And what is really life-giving for them? So there's this researcher out of Stanford that I talk about in the book, Heather. And Heather did, her scholarship is on the difference between 
purpose and passion. And what Heather says is some kids do have passions. They're very passionate. For example, I mentioned gymnastics earlier, so we'll stick with this. They're very passionate about gymnastics. They want to be an elite gymnast and it is driven by them not by their parents, mm-hmm. not by their coaches, coaches. This is what they want to pursue. Mm-hmm. In that instance, passion comes with sacrifice, but they should be able to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can have passion, but everybody can have purpose. Amen. And purpose is equally powerful. And purpose could be, I want to help people. And I see myself going into social change or nonprofit work or becoming a teacher. But purpose can also be, I want to provide for my family. I want to be a a great son. I want to be, you know, an incredible cousin. Mm -hmm. And those pieces also have to be honored. And so based on somebody's purpose, you can begin, they can, you can co-design with them what the number of possible futures could be. So if you want to stay close to home and provide for your family, and that's your core purpose, Mm. well, then what are all of the things that you can do that will enable you to make money and stay close to home? Mm. You live in Hawaii. The cost of living is unbelievable. And if a young person wants to stay in Hawaii and provide for their parents, Mm -hmm. there are particular parameters to fulfilling that purpose. If somebody's purpose is that they want to go into conservation, well, there are a number of different opportunities there, which is why in the book I do suggest helping young people discover the causes and the questions and concerns Mm. and the purpose that can really last and endure a changing job market, a volatile and disruptive economy, and also, you know, different choices and changes that they'll experience across their lifetime. For me, it's not about particular jobs. It's about the journey. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well said. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. And speaking of Hawaii, Malia, both in 2022 and 2023, you have made trips to Hawaii to work with educators and leaders and tap into your native Hawaiian roots. So in what ways have these trips, these workshops, speaking engagements, and formal or informal gatherings helped you develop your sense of belonging and your thinking about belonging which you write about extensively in Whole Child, Whole Life. What does this culture out here in this tiny little speck in the middle of the Pacific have to add to the national and global conversation about belonging, which is rooted in identity and community and connection? I have so much to say and so little time on (laughs) this question. This is true. So I will first direct listeners that if you pick up a copy of Whole Child, Whole Life, I talk about my own identity as being a Native Hawaiian woman in the first chapter. Mm -hmm. So I open with Hawaii. Then the entire chapter on embracing culture and identity really centers around some of the incredible work that's happening in Hawaii inside and outside of the schoolhouse. So it opens with a story of a lo'i, a taro farm in West Kauai, 
close to a middle school that you and I both know well, Waimea Canyon Middle School. Mm-hmm. And the book ends in Hawaii with an incredible story and metaphor of the kupu fern and a longitudinal study, a little bit more scientific on resiliency and thriving. So I just want to anchor folks beyond what I'm about to tell you, Josh, which actually involves you, mm. that there's this kind of explosive exploration of how, where we come from, our roots have so much to say about who we are and what makes us who we are. And that kids learning and exploring their roots does help them form their identity and where they belong. And and there's a lot of research that it also supports their thriving. Mm-hmm. So the story that involves you is I was just writing an article this weekend on how it took me more than 10 years of parenting to be able to take my native Hawaiian children to Hawaii. Mm. And that they are very fair-skinned, and so am I, as you know, and so they can pass as white. And outside of the cultural experience they get in our own home. My mom, who's Native Hawaiian, lives here. And so together, she and I have introduced them to a level of our culture, language and food and other aspects of our history and and traditions. They could easily go through life without any connection to the aina, to the land, to our culture. Mm. And thanks to your wonderful connections, not only were we able to, I was able to get work to be able to come over to Hawaii last spring, but I was able to bring the boys with me. And there was one moment where we gathered in an open amphitheater, you were there. There were administrators from across Hawaii who were there. Mm -hmm. And this is an important part of my story, but also the book, which is that what is good for kids is often good for us. Yes, I was in the middle of the editing process for Whole Child, Whole Life. And so I, I was excited to immerse my kids in their culture and introduce them to Hawaii their grandmother and with their mother and put these pieces together for them. Mm. But what I failed to recognize was that I had never had the experience of seeing all of my integrated parts come together and standing in this open amphitheater in Honolulu with you, with educators from across Hawaii, with my mother, with my husband, with my children Mm. and seeing our culture reflected in the Mm. remarks and the language and the food and the scenery and the jokes and Mm. all of it on play activated a level of thriving in me Mm. that I didn't even realize I was missing. And so I would just offer to listeners that an exploration of kids' cultures should come with an exploration of your own Mm. and that our thriving and their thriving are really bound up together. And sometimes by doing this work for them, we tap into a level of well-being for ourselves that we didn't even realize we weren't tapped into. Mm. And that happened for me at that amphitheater when we were together.
Wow. You know, on the mainland in the Midwest where you live, they call it goosebumps. Here in Hawaii, we call it chicken skin. And that's what I have right now. And I can picture that moment so clearly. And so I'm going to extend the question a little bit further, Malia. Near the end of your new book, Whole Child, Whole Life, you wrote, and I quote, inhale is internal, exhale is social, inhale is temporal, exhale is transcendental. This breath work is our child care work. It sustains the children we care for and about, connecting them to themselves, each other, their pasts, futures, and something greater. So because our audience is made up mostly of educators, what might your words mean to all the teachers out there in our public, private, and charter and homeschools far and wide? Like how might these words that you've written be a hokulea, a guiding star to them? Well, first I want to extend sincere thanks to Ka'anoe, who works in the Office of Hawaiian Education, who helped me see that the practices came together, these 10 practices with this inhale and exhale. Mm. So we inhale in meeting the basic needs of young people and prioritizing their mental health and investing in their interests. That's their internal individual work. Mm. And then we exhale when we help them nurture healthy relationships and build community and belonging and embrace their culture and identity. And then we inhale again as we help them situate themselves in past generations and how that has impacted them and the future that they're walking toward, that that temporal piece you mentioned. And then we exhale again as we bring them out to be a force for good, to be of service and to experience the beauty of the world and see themselves as being a part of something bigger. And so what I would just implore folks back again to the the broad and wide of it all and the specific of it all is this is the science and art of taking care of kids. Mm. It is not a prescriptive program. I know in your recent episode, talking kind of about mysticism, the Mm. word alchemy was used and I use it in the book. I talk about the science and art and alchemy, a little bit of magic, a little bit of mystery in this child care work. Mm -hmm. So as people read this, it is the fullness of what we are called into and our responsibility. It's not a checklist of things to do. Mm. It's a set of lifetime, timeless practices to consider and check in on and to blend and braid into all of the work that you're already doing. Mm. It's a way of doing the work. It's a way of being in the work Mm. of caring for kids. Mm. And that means that there's not an expectation that you do more or do different unless you're doing practices that actively cause harm for kids that don't care for them mm. or that detract and take kids away from the chance to experience those practices like having their basic needs met or having healthy relationships, or feeling as though they belong. Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so, Malia, one more question before we close out this fantastic conversation. One of the great joys 
of producing and hosting this podcast are the many rabbit holes my guests send me down. So you two love a good rabbit hole. So let's go down one that is about a fern plant that has some extraordinary qualities, skills, habits, and dispositions, and you've already referenced it a few minutes ago. So what will we find when we dive into this kupu fern rabbit hole, and what will we learn about our kids? And I wonder to what extent this kupu fern plant served as the string or rope that tied everything together for you as you became the mother of a new book, Whole Child, Whole Life. Well, this story of the kupu kupu fern is so powerful that I have researched fern tattoos, fern <laughs> jewelry, anything to, to remind me of it. And, and here's why. Every book that I have ever read on thriving and flourishing does not deal with the hardship of it all. Mm. And life is hard for these kids. It's troubling. There are things that are just really scary and worrisome. And I needed to know as a mother and an educator and a social worker that there was a way for them to thrive in hard times, in hardship, because it's been 20 years of volatility and it's not going to let up anytime soon. Mm. So last May, same trip as that amphitheater experience, I was with another incredible group of educators that Josh, you are connected to as well at the Kupuho Academy. And Mm -hmm. together we were spending time exploring the future of learning, learning innovation, and some of these early concepts that would become whole child, whole life. Mm. And there was a teacher, the the religious teacher on the campus, who opened up our time together by telling the story of the kupu fern. Mm. So for listeners who don't know about the kupu, kupu fern, or I'll call it the kupu fern, it is in Hawaii, when the lava flows and it dries black and cracked, if you've never seen it, it looks like another planet. It's so desolate. And eventually, fern emerges. And imagine this like brilliant green fern against this black, dry, crack lava. Hmm. And it you can't imagine how it could possibly be sustained. And so the kupu fern is used as a story of resiliency. But for me, I saw it as a story, really a question of like, what is happening in the earth? And what is happening in this fern's environment that it can possibly grow Mm. and thrive and flourish in these conditions. Mm -hmm. And it took me down this crazy rabbit hole, as you (laughs) mentioned, of ferns, which turn out, turns out that like, besides algae are our most ancient plant. Mm -hmm. And they can grow in any environment. They can thrive in any environment, except for absolute darkness. Mm. And I felt like that was such a picture of our kids today that we cannot see them plunged into what my mentor, Kit Danley, who's in the chapter on on Wonder, what Kit calls the inky darkness, that we have to bring them out into the light and that with 
enough light and with enough water, right? Nourishment, nutrients that they actually can thrive anywhere, Mm. but they will never thrive in the absolute darkness. Mm. And so the Kupu fern stands out for me as the most stark example of that emerging from desolation, from dryness, from, from something that has burned and killed the ground underneath it. And it's a picture of what's to come because eventually those dried lava fields became Hawaii. I mean, eventually it becomes fertile, beautiful, abundant ground. Mm. Awesome. That's an awesome way to bring this conversation to a close. So listeners, we've been talking to Stephanie Malia Kraus, author first of Making It and now a two-time author who is about to release Whole Child, Whole Life, 10 Ways to Help Kids Live learn and thrive, which you can find in pretty much any of the bookstores that you can order at online. Malia, do you want to just uh, give everybody a quick sort of heads up about where they can go to find out more about you and about the book? Absolutely. So to find out more about the book, you can just go to www.wholechildwholelife.com. And if you are at a school or a youth organization, we are working on a group discussion guide Mm. to support any kind of book club or book study that you might have. The book already has reflection questions and activities through it, but there's more information on bulk buys on that website. You can also sign up for weekly newsletters with tips on how to help kids thrive this week and in the coming days. And if you want to learn more about me and figure out ways we can work together, you can go to www.stephaniemaliakraus.com. Perfect. Stephanie Malia Kraus, thank you for being on the show today. This was a blast and a privilege for me to do this episode. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>